Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Uh, we are in Acts chapters three and four today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, last week, Jim introduced us to the book of Acts. Uh, we talked about Acts chapter two, and he talked about the Pentecost. Um, a common theme in the book of Acts is the fact that there's name in the power of Christ. And we all know this, but that is a phrase that's used 11 or 12 times in the book of Acts. Um, to, to start off, I wanted to talk about a little bit about names. In our culture, names, in the American culture, names identify ourselves. Um, I'm a physical therapist, like Jim said. I work at Memorial Hospital. And anybody who is in um, the hospital and wants to receive medicine or a treatment or a service, they have to identify themselves by their names. Um, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish faith, they put more emphasis on the meaning of the name. A lot of times, names are chosen based on their meaning because it'll tell you something about the ancestry of the person or some attributes that the parents want the child to have. Um, the Bible tells us that there is a name that is above every name. Philippians 2, it tells us that um, Jesus' name has ultimate worth. It's kind of funny because sometimes in our culture, we'll think that our names have worth. Well, um, if I go to a, a store very frequently and I tell a friend to go to that store also and I'll say, hey, you know what, tell them I sent you. Say my name when you're checking out and you'll get something good. So the idea is that I, I think that my name has worth and that it'll accomplish something good for the person that I'm sending to that store. Um, but ultimately, my name means very little. Um, but we, Philippians 2 tells us that there is a name that is above every name and that it carries with it authority. It carries ultimate authority. It is authority. You can think of scripture as being true, or you can think of scripture as being truth. Both are accurate, but one is more accurate than the other. You can think of God as being loving, or scripture tells us that God is love. So both are accurate, one is more accurate. We can think that Jesus' name has authority, or that we can uh, think that Jesus' name is authority. One is more true than the other. So it's with that mindset that we go into Acts Chapter 3, and we're going to learn about a lame man who was healed. Verse 1, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. The ninth hour meant nine hours after sunrise, which is at 6. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms or donations from those who entered the temple. Now the fact that this gate is called temp, uh, the fact that this gate is called beautiful doesn't really have too much to do with the story. It probably meant that this gate was made of brass where most other temples were made of silver and gold. Um, this lame man was carried by those who knew him and he was asking for donations to people who were entering the temple. What better a group of people to ask for money from than Christians? Um, Verse 3, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. This is an imperfect tense, meaning that he kept asking. He asked repeatedly. The first blank on your worksheet is where we are now. This lame man was asking for money, but what he truly needed, money could not buy. He needed salvation, and he needed healing. Those are your first two blanks. Verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting to receive? Money, exactly. Verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, Peter, 
took him by the right hand and lifted him up. This demonstrates how sure Peter was that healing was going to take place. He gave them the command to stand up and walk, and he picked him up right then. And immediately, his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, <coughs> leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So now we come to the chart that's on your worksheet, and there are two columns there. This is, we're looking at the lame man in the mirror. There are two columns. One is labeled lame man. The other one has a blank for you to write your name. One is going to be facts about the lame man, and one is going to be facts about us, where we can see our testimony and the testimony of this man. So the first thing we learn about the lame man is that he was lame from the womb. In the same way, we are born into our sinful nature. Romans 3.23 tells us that. This man knew nothing but being crippled, and when we are born, we know nothing but our own sin. This man was seated outside the temple in the same way that we are separated from God. Romans 6.23. This man received the free gift of healing, even though he was asking for money, you know, how often do we think we know what we need and we go to God asking for something and we get frustrated when we don't receive it? He didn't know what he truly needed. So in the same way that he <coughs> received the free gift of healing, we receive the free gift of salvation. Again, Romans 6.23. This lame man was healed by grace in the same way that we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2.8. And lastly, both of us receive, or both of us have a public profession of our faith. In the story, the lame man went leaping and walking and jumping, and he went into the temple with Peter and John. Our public professions are baptism and participation um, in communion or the Lord's Supper and getting involved in our local church. So if we look closely, we can see in just these nine or ten verses where we learned about the lame man, we can see our testimony um, very easily in what we know about him. So let's keep going. Verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. It's like a spiritual light bulb went off. He saw this opportunity. He's got all these people's attention. So let's make something of it. He says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer. Who is he talking about? What murderer? Yeah, exactly. As for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So your next blank is Paul's, um, Peter's message is one of conviction. His, his, uh, his message is convicting. He needed the people, this Jewish audience, to realize what they had done in killing Jesus. They had crucified him. You don't seek treatment until you know you're sick. And so he needed them to understand their sinfulness before they could accept um, repentance and, and follow forward in salvation. 
verse 16. This is kind of the crux of the whole, the whole two chapters. Verse 16, in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Um, your next blank here is, I got nothing. This, you know, I, I camped out on this verse for a long time when I was preparing for the message and tried to come up with a way to illustrate or expound upon or explain the, the fact that, that faith in Jesus' name, all you needed was Jesus' name, was, um, was all you needed to, to make this man whole, to heal this man, and I couldn't. Any, any way that I would try to explain it would just belittle the miracle that it is. So your blank there is I got nothing. Verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. There's a quote on your worksheet by Warren Wearsby. It says, The prophets had foretold the sufferings and the death of the Messiah, and the nation fulfilled these prophecies without realizing what they were doing. When God cannot rule, he overrules, and always accomplishes his divine purposes and decrees. So what Peter's saying is that the Jewish people were acting in ignorance. They had the Messiah. Um, they ignored him and they crucified him. But all of these acts were not outside the sphere of God's control. You still had God's sovereignty at work, um, accomplishing his purposes. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The first part of that verse that your sins may be blotted out, it's focusing on the individual repentance. The repentance of each individual that he's talking to. The second part, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is the national repentance. He's urging the entire um, group of people, the nation of Israel, to come to repentance so that the return of Jesus, that this time of refreshing may come all the more sooner. Verse 20, And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which is the millennial kingdom, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This quote is from Deuteronomy 18, and the Jews thought of Moses as being the greatest prophet. So when Moses tells them, we'll raise up a prophet like me from your brethren, he's talking about the Messiah. This is Jesus he's talking about. In the second part of that verse, it says, those who will not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed. Well, not only did they not hear that prophet, they crucified him. So Peter's getting real with them. He's being harsh and showing their sin for what it is. Again, trying to bring about that repentance of each individual and the nation as a whole. Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So basically he's saying you of all people should have not have missed this. You had the prophets, you had Samuel, you had Moses, you had Abraham, you had these words, and you totally missed it. Verse 26, to you first, meaning the Jews, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, 
sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So again, he's bringing it back to this personal message of repentance for each individual, that trusting in, in Christ, trusting in Jesus can turn you away from your iniquities. So now we are at the end of chapter 3, and we have looked at the lame man. We've looked at, we've identified our testimony that's in the testimony of the lame man, and we've talked about Peter's audience, this Jewish audience, who were, they should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, but they missed it. They had all the prophecies, and they still missed it. So we focused on those two aspects. But we haven't talked about Peter and John. Um, what we know about Peter and John in this story is that they did everything right. They were on their way to church. They saw a man who needed to be healed. They healed him. They took no credit for themselves. Um, they gave all the credit to Christ. They went on into the church with the man. They, um, then Peter preached, and later on we'll find out that 2,000 people were converted because of this sermon. So Peter and John pretty much did everything right. And so in our minds, what would we expect to happen next? What would you expect? As Christians, don't we sometimes want to think that if we do something for the sake of the gospel or something for the sake of God, that we expect good things to happen. I mean, the, the Bible, the Sunday school answer is no, we expect persecution. But the true answer is that we expect blessing and praise and good results. Okay, so let's go into Acts chapter 4. Verse 1, <clears throat> Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So now we have our shift. We've seen Peter and John do everything right, and you would expect blessing from God, but you see the persecution that comes. Um, a few weeks ago, Brian Smith had a sermon on the first book of James and he talked about the trials and the blessings and he talked about how we go from that shift of being in, in blessing and then we have trials that come and how does that affect how we view God and his whole point was that our circumstances don't have any bearing on, on the nature and the characteristics of God they are unchanging they never change this is a quote from Brian Smith in that sermon do either of those contexts determine the character of God. Because God is just as good and just as gracious and just as merciful and just as holy and just as all the things we proclaim him to be when we celebrate his good things and he's all those things when trial comes. He is still who he is. Our circumstance does not dictate the character and the nature of God. Our circumstance does not dictate the character in the nature of God. So here we see that shift from blessing to trial, and God hasn't changed. Peter and John could, you know, shake their fists at the heavens, but God is still just as loving as he was in Acts chapter 3 when that man was healed. He's just as loving when these people take Peter and John and throw them in jail. He's just as loving and he's just as just. And it's important for us to have a biblical understanding of and, and maturity in our scripture, understanding so that we can balance the sound in our hearts. So verse 4, however, many of those who heard the word believe, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So this 5,000 comes at Pentecost, there were 3,000 converts. Jim talked about that last week. Here we have 2,000 who responded to Peter's message after the lame man was healed, so that's our 5,000 total. 
Verse 5, And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So here's the next blank on your sheet. Um, Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin. This was the same council that had condemned Jesus to death. So Peter and John knew very well what their possible consequences could be, but they still proceeded in boldness. Verse 7, And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so your next blank. Okay, take your finger and go up to verse 9 and put your finger by the last two words, made well. By what means he has been made well. This is the lame man, meaning this was the physical healing of the, ma- the, the lame man. And then take your other hand and put your finger by the end of verse 12 where it says saved. Among men by which we must be saved. So both of these are the same Greek word, and that's your next blank. The Greek word is sozo, S-O-Z-O. It's the same word that is used to describe the healing, the physical healing of the lame man, and the spiritual healing of us. So the name of Jesus can easily accomplish both. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. If they, their, their problem here is that if they deny the miracle, they deny the, the physically healed man that is standing right in front of them. But if they affirm that this miracle happened, then they have to affirm Peter's message that it was done in the name of Christ which they don't want to do that either. So the Sanhedrin is stuck right now. Verse 15, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. They said, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Now, something worth noting here is that in verse 15, it tells us that they, the Sanhedrin made Peter and John walk away. And it says they conferred among themselves, and in verses 16 and 17, were privy to their private conversation. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, exactly. Now, Luke wasn't a part of the Sanhedrin, so how could he possibly know what the Sanhedrin was talking about amongst themselves? What did you say? Holy Spirit, okay, that's one something a little more interesting that one of the commentaries um, that I read told me was that a member of the Sanhedrin was named Saul at this time. Saul would later, we would know Saul later as Paul, and Paul would be very close to Luke. And so 
without even knowing it, Peter is being used by God to soften Saul's heart at this time. And we all know the man that Saul became later on. So it's just interesting how, how God works and how he is ultimately sovereign. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to say at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man who was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So now we're fixing to see our last shift. We've talked about the miracle in the lame man and his healing. We've talked about the message that Peter gave, which yielded 2,000 converts. We've watched the trial play out of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and they've ultimately been dismissed, and they've been threatened not to, to do any more in the name of Christ. So now we see our third and final shift is that how, do, how does the church respond to this? How does the early church uh, respond to this persecution? Verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. This, the word voice there is singular. So what you have is this idea of multiple voices coming together, and it's all orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. You've got multiple voices um, coming together and going up as one voice to God. I don't know if you guys watch the sing-off. The finale's tomorrow night. Pretty excited. Um, but, um, but, but it's exciting because you've got all these 5, 10, 15. One group has like 30 guys in it. And it's beautiful because they can all come together and it really does sound like one voice. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, and so this idea here in verse 24 when it says, they raise their voice to God with one accord. This with one accord, it has a musical idea. It's that multiple voices are coming together in perfectly matching pitch and tone, okay? So your, your blank on your handout there is the harmony of the church results from, it relies on, it is made perfect by, it depends on, it has to have the influence of, the direction of, the involvement of the Holy Spirit. It has to have it. If we don't have the Holy Spirit in our church, in our midst, we sound like chaos, but when we have the Holy Spirit orchestrating and directing our voices, we come together as one voice, united by the Holy Spirit for Christ and going up to God. Verse 25, or the end of 24, and said, the, uh, this is the church talking, Lord, you are God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. We're at your next blank where David Guzik says, Because they saw their circumstances in light of God's word, they could recognize that the wrath of man never operated outside the sphere of God's control. 
the early church was comforted. We've seen multiple examples of scripture being repeated, of prophecy. And this was a comfort to them because it, it showed that God was sovereign, that, they were, that he was still accomplishing his purposes, even though the events of the day seemed chaotic and out of control. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is your next blank. Signs and wonders can get attention, but the word of God saves. Nobody was brought to salvation by seeing the lame man being healed. It took Peter presenting the gospel and preaching so that people would respond. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. To the early church, people were greater than possessions. And that's on your handout. To the early church, people meant more than possessions. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now this is an example of radical giving and sharing. Everybody shared exactly what they had, um, but this could quickly get out of control when it did. This scenario is unique to the early church because many of these converts, the 2,000 that we're talking about today, they were out-of-towners. They were coming into town to go to the temple. And they were converted and they were saved and now they've joined the church, but now they're homeless. And so this, this idea that they needed to share all things was for the survival of the early church. And it did get out of hand. And so that's why Paul spends time in his um, later epistles laying out parameters that would parameters of giving that would protect the people in the church. That's why we have that later on in the New Testament. Lastly, verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of, son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have a specific example of the spirit of giving and generosity that should be evident in us as the church to the watching world. So for application, I felt like these two chapters broke down very neatly into three different parts. The first part, we have the testimony of the lame man, and we've already talked about seeing our testimony in him. So number one is God wants to use my testimony. Number two, after we saw the healing of the lame man, we moved into Peter's message and his preaching, which yielded the 2,000 converts. So God wants to use my voice. And thirdly, after the 2,000 converts um, occurred and, and he, they, uh, the Sanhedrin dismissed both Peter and John, they went back to their church and they prayed to God not, for, um, not to prevent 
further trials, but they basically said, bring it on. Give us the boldness to continue to act in your name. So number three is God wants to use my church. And you can see in personalized, we've got three very simple commands. I need to know my testimony if I want God to use it. And I need to step up and speak with my voice if I want God to use that. And for God to use our church, we need to um, demonstrate this, this act of boldness and this spirit of giving and generosity that we've seen portrayed in the early church. And that way we can live it out and our church can really accomplish something for the sake of Christ. Thank you.